Well, the, the same Apostle Paul that we are uh, considering as he stands before King Agrippa and Festus this morning, he wrote a letter uh, during his third missionary journey. That letter is uh, recorded for us uh, he wrote, uh, in, the, in the Bible. It's the first epistle to the Corinthians. It was written under the inspiration of the Spirit. And in that letter, Paul declares that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Later in the, in the, in the same chapter, in chapter 1, he, he turns and says, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who, were, who believe. But Paul said that God is not known through much wisdom of this world. It is not known through the, through the power of persuasion or of rhetoric. But that God is known through the foolishness of preaching. He goes on to say that the Jews request a sign and, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews to the ones who wanted signs, he is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, the ones who wanted wisdom, he is foolishness. The message is foolishness. But to those who are called, both from the Greeks and the Jews, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who wanted a sign, they, they got a stumbling block. Those who wanted wisdom, they got foolishness. Or they understood it as foolishness. But those who are saved, they actually receive the power and the wisdom of God in the message preached. When you recognize the, the reasonableness of the gospel, when your eyes are opened by the Spirit, Paul says, you, are, you receive uh, what is clearly common sense. There is no more darkness. There is no more sin uh, clouding your view. And therefore you receive the message with gladness. And you see the reasonableness and the common sense that is to accept the message of the gospel. But there are those, aren't there, who never receive it. There are those who hear it and reject it. And you ask why? I believe our passage speaks of, uh, to, to the why of people rejecting the message of the gospel. You remember, uh, let me just quickly recap where we are. Uh, Paul has finished his third missionary journey. Uh, he's come to, he came to Jerusalem, brought an, uh, an offering to the church in Jerusalem. As he's in the temple, he, he gets uh, surrounded by a mob. He's almost killed. He's taken into custody by the Roman uh, uh, commander, Claudius Lysias, and from there he's sent to Caesarea. In Caesarea, he is um, firstly judged, or firstly brought before Felix. Felix doesn't do much because he, he's trying to be an, a good politician and, and, and keep the balance of power. Uh, but later, Felix is deposed. Festus uh, comes into power, and he has to deal with this prisoner, Paul. And 
Paul uh, and he Paul is called before him and Paul is uh, gives his um, defense Festus doesn't know what to do with Paul he wants to send Paul to Jerusalem but Paul says I won't go to Jerusalem I am I appeal to Caesar because he knew that if he went to Jerusalem he would be killed there and because he appealed to Caesar now to Caesar he must go but because he cannot go to Caesar uh, without a, a, a formal uh, charge, Festus calls on his good friend King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, to, to come and help him find uh, something to accuse Paul with so that he can send Paul to, to, to meet Nero in Rome, Emperor Nero in Rome. And so as he, Paul stands before this illustrious audience that is composed of uh, the, the proconsul uh, Festus and of the, of the king uh, uh, Agrippa and his sister uh, um, Bernice. As Paul stands before this congregation of other rulers and commanders and, and military leaders of the region of Syria, of the empire of Rome, he gives a defense and he starts speaking about what the Lord, his testimony, and what the Lord has done in his life. He makes it clear about his conversion experience in Damascus. And Paul reveals the, to those present that the mission that he uh, had, had been entrusted by, by Christ himself to go and to take the message of the gospel. In order, as we read last week in, uh, in, verse, in chapter 26, um, and in, in uh, verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith. And as he, Paul continues on speaking uh, about the sacrifice of Jesus, about his death, burial, and his resurrection, Paul then gets interrupted. He gets interrupted firstly by Festus, or he gets interrupted by Festus, and he addresses Festus firstly, but then we'll see an interaction with King Agrippa as well before we see what both of them make up of these charges against the Apostle Paul. That's the three points for this, for this morning. The, the reaction of Festus, the reaction of King Agrippa, and the opinion of those present in the audience about the charges brought against the Apostle. So while Paul, Paul the Apostle was still speaking, here comes Festus. He, with a loud voice, he shouts, You are beside yourself. You're mad. You are, you are completely lunatic. You're a lunatic. The word here for mad is uh, maniac, uh, mania in, in Greek, which is the same word that we get the word maniac. Uh, in the, and in the Latin, in the Latin translation of this, it's the word for, for um, insanity. And he says, much learning is driving you mad. All this talk about, about uh, the power of darkness, all this talk about theology, much letters. Uh, literally speaking, Festus says, a lot of letters, a lot of studying is driving you mad. He gets interrupted, and, and it is not surprising that these things made no sense to Festus. 
Festus was a Roman citizen. He, he didn't understand a thing about the Jewish religion. He didn't understand a thing, uh, although probably a very well-educated man and certainly someone who was uh, fairer than his predecessor. He had no knowledge and no interest in the Judeo uh, the, uh, Ju uh, Jewish theology. That's why he actually asks Agrippa to come in and, and, uh, and provide counsel in this matter. Paul's, word ha Paul's words had no meaning to him. It's like uh, you hear someone talking about an area of expertise that they have, uh, which you have absolutely no basis to understand. It's, it's a whole new set of vocabulary. And, and, and Festus is confused. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's saying, you, you don't belong in the prison. You actually, pr probably, you belong in the mental institution. That's where you should go. You lost your mind. Much learning is driving you mad. But the, the Apostle Paul responds to him. He says, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. He responds to an accusation, to an insult, with uh, candor when, and with uh, calm, sober, and uh, in a respectful way. Most noble, most excellent Festus, I am not mad. I'm far from having lost my mind, Paul says. What I speak are the words of truth and reason. Uh, some translations put it, the words of truth and common sense. What I'm speaking are... Uh, may seem foolishness to you, to use the same words that Paul uses in, in uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, it may seem foolishness to you, it may seem uh, crazy talk, but that's because you're lost. Your eyes haven't been opened to the gospel of Christ. Your heart hasn't been regenerated by the Spirit. Paul doesn't say this, but he, he, might, he might as well have. This is the underlying theology and then Paul turns to King Agrippa. He, he turns to King Agrippa and he says to him, King Agrippa, you believe the prophets, don't you? I know you do. Tell, tell me, do you, you believe the prophets? And King Agrippa was certainly someone who was well versed in Jewish theology. He was probably a Sadducee, so he was probably a little bit more liberal to, with some of these things. He was a, probably a little bit more loose with some of his theology, but he knew Jewish theology. He had to deal with Sadducees and Pharisees. He had to deal with the zealots and the scribes and, and all manner of people as a king of, uh, in the, uh, of, of the Jews in, the, in, this, in this region. And Paul says, you know these things. This was, this was not done. Uh, you know about the resurrection of Christ. You know about the, the, the things that I'm telling you about. This was not something that was done in secret. That was done in, uh, happened uh, 20, 30 years ago and no one knew about it. And all of a sudden there is this group of people who says that this happened. This was common knowledge to everyone all throughout Judea. Christ's ministry was a ministry that was public from beginning to end. From the Jordan to, the, to, the, to Calvary and beyond, everyone knew what was happening. And that's what Paul says. I'm convinced that none of these things escape your attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. These things were well known. 
Christianity as it began was not some kind of mystery religion. It was not some, uh, some uh, uh, nowadays you would call it Illuminati and, uh, and uh, uh, what is the other uh, secret society? That, uh, there's many kinds of secret... Christianity didn't begin like this kind of Illuminati and uh, secret society that gathered together. No, it was all out in the open. Everyone knew. It was a public affair. And by this time, 20, 30 years later, after the events, uh, the faithful events of, uh, of Good Friday and, and Resurrection Sunday, uh, thousands had been converted to the Christian movement. Certainly King Agrippa was not ignorant of this. But what does King Agrippa react uh, What does King Agrippa answer? What does he say? Verse 29. Oh no, verse 28. Then Agrippa says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. What an interesting statement that is. It's not one that you would immediately think as, uh, as the statement that he would make here. And the question is, uh, what did Agrippa, King Agrippa, mean by saying this? Because the, Paul's question, first of all, left the king in, in a very delicate position. If he answers that he doesn't believe the prophets, he's in trouble. His reputation as the king of the Jews would be damaged. But if he answers that he, uh, that he does believe, that indeed he believes, he's basically admitting that Paul is right. So Paul's question, much in, in, uh, in the fashion of, of Paul's master, our Lord Jesus Christ, is one of those questions that leaves uh, the, the, the person answering it with, with, a, with a rather hot potato that he doesn't know how to deal with it. Who do you say that I am? Or who do you say, was, was John the Baptist baptism from heaven or not? Or those kind of questions that leave the, the, the answering party bewildered because he's, he's been cornered. If he says, yes, I believe, or if he says, no, I don't believe, He's in trouble with his, with his subjects. If he says, yes, I believe, he's now admitted that Paul is speaking the truth. The Roman, or the, the biblical scholar uh, and uh, an expert in Roman history, F.F. Bruce, uh, and Jewish history as well. F.F. Uh, Bruce, he wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, perhaps the, the most well-researched commentary on this, on this book ever written. He says, anyone who believed the prophets and compared their predictions with the historical facts concerning Jesus of Nazareth should recognize the truth of Christianity, the miracles he performed, the unparalleled authority of his teaching, his suffering, his death and the resurrection, all of it abundantly attested to his messianic identity. To admit that he knows the prophets is to admit that Paul is right about the identity of Christ and about what the prophets said about the Messiah and how they pointed to Christ. So what does Agrippa do? Like any good politician, he shifts 
and he, 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 he does a really nice trick and he doesn't answer the question. Isn't it wonderful when you see the po politicians in the, in the House of Commons on, 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 uh, on prime minister questions or in other debates, they, they get asked the question directly and they manage to shift and turn and they, they never answer the question. Because any que reply that they give to that question is going to uh, commit, uh, commit them to, a, to a, a line or to, a, to, a, to a, a position that they don't want to be committed to because they like being uh, ambiguous. It's not new. It's always been like this. And here is a group of demonstrating it happening. Uh, so what he says? Well, he doesn't answer. And he says, You're, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And the, and the question is, what does he mean by this? Some people say, some commentators say, that he was being ironic here. That he, was, uh, that he wasn't being serious. He, is, he was being, oh, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. In fact, uh, some commentators, some translators actually translate it so quickly and you're trying to convert me, Paul. It's kind of like the, the King Agrippa is turning to him and it's like, you're already trying to convert me? Or perhaps he's being serious. And he's saying, oh, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. So it isn't certain if it is a reality that is being expressed or only an ironic kind of you almost persuade me to become a Christian, but be it as it may, Paul's words seem, uh, at least in part, to have been understood by the king and have um, been in some way confronting, convicting to the king. One way or the other, because irony so often is, is, a, is a, a way of dismissing something that is really happening down there. Uh, one way or the other, it is clear that King Agrippa was touched or confronted by the message. And what does Paul say? In spite of his question being unanswered, Paul goes on and says, how I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. It's as if Paul, with, with boldness, with kindness, with, with sweetness <coughs> as well, but full of compassion, he looks upon his audience, not only you, King Agrippa, but all who listen to me, I would to God that they would become Christians. The expression is here tra translated in a, in a sense that I would to God, as if it's just a, an expression, but it can be actually translated as a prayer. I pray to God. Whether almost or a lot, that not only you, O King, but all who hear my voice this, this, this day might become such as I am, but without the chains. The chains you, you, you can do away with. Still inserting a little bit of humor, I believe, here. But what Paul is saying, I would that all of them that are here, they would be as forgiven and as redeemed as I am by the sovereign grace of God through the atoning death of Jesus. And then thirdly and lastly, verse 30 to 32 
we read that when Paul had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice. Uh, I re remember I told you that Bernice seems to be like a, uh, always attached to King Agrippa uh, in, the, in, the, in the narrative here. And Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What a wicked man! What a, what a wicked admission from, the, from these two. So you mean that Paul is, is innocent? And he could, could, could have, would have been set free? Had he not appealed to Caesar, you can still set him free. Caesar is in Rome. He, does, he knows nothing of, about what's happening in, in, in this area of the world. Uh, Nero is there, and he's more concerned about whatever depravity he's committing at that time. He doesn't know about Paul. If he's innocent, just release him. There is no, there is no room for, no need for appeal. He's appealing the fact that you're condemning him. But no, they cannot do that, can they? But they admit, again, that he has done nothing deserve of death or chains or imprisonment. That there is nothing uh, in his actions. Maybe Festus would say, yeah, he's a little bit kooky. He's a little bit delusional. He's, he's a little bit uh, too much, as they, they say today. But he's not a criminal. What is clear from, from his defense is that he does not present a, a, a threat to the empire or to the, to the status quo. He is not a revolutionary. Yeah, you might say that his passion for Christ is a little bit too much, but, but technically, legally speaking, he has done nothing wrong. And Agrippa says the same thing. And with these verdicts, I've already alluded to this, but one of the goals of Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit in writing this, uh, this book is to provide an apology, a defense of Christianity. Because you need to remember that at the time that this is written, Christianity was, was in a very precarious condition in, an empire, in the Roman Empire. By now, Christianity had already been uh, through quite a bit of persecution, even at the hands uh, of the Roman Emperor. Yes, it was because of the Jewish uh, connection. The Roman Empire would see Christianity as a, an arm, an extension of the Jewish religion. So with Emperor Claudius, there was already some, uh, some um, persecution, but more on a local level. We've seen that happen in the, in the missionary journeys where the Jews and, uh, would uh, conspire and, and make, make it so that the, the Roman authorities would turn against Christianity. And the point that Luke is trying to make in this letter, or in this letter, in this uh, narrative, in this account of the events, is that Christianity, whenever put to the test under Roman law, has been found innocent of turning the world upside down, as they say. Christianity emerges uh, out of the pages of the book of Acts as a respectable religion. And Paul himself as innocent of any offense against the imperial government.
Obviously, the opinions of King Agrippa and the other members did nothing to help Governor Festus. And they had to send Paul back to Rome or send Paul to, all the way to Rome with nothing really to, as a, a manner of, or as a, a point of accusation. So by now, Claudius Lysias, Felix, Festus, the military and the civil authorities of Caesarea, King Agrippa himself, they've admitted nothing wrong. It kind of reminds you, doesn't it, of, of another Jewish person, another Jewish man, 20, 30 years before, being brought before the governor of his time and before the king of his time and being found innocent and still being taken to court and still being led to his condemnation. Our Lord Jesus passed exactly through the same thing, was handed over to his enemies for the same thing, for, for exactly the same reason, none whatsoever. But notwithstanding all of this, before we come to, to draw some lessons from this passage, notwithstanding all of this, Paul was still filled with joy. Going through all of this, he writes this letter to the Philippians. And I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough in the next two chapters. Because it is so often the case when we are under the most dire, difficult circumstances and, we are, uh, and the weight of, the, of our surroundings and the things that are seemingly going wrong in our lives are weighing us down and making us uh, more and more bitter. The most joyful letter that Paul wrote, it is called the, 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 the epistle of joy in the New Testament was written under these circumstances. To the Philippians, he says, nevertheless, my joy is overflowing. Because all of this means that he can testify even in Caesar's household. What happened to King Agrippa? What happened to uh, and Bernice? Let's not forget Bernice. What happened to Festus? What happened to all of that multitude, that illustrious congregation that met together? Well, although they acknowledged Paul's innocence, unfortunately, there is not one single indication that there was any repentance, any turning from sin, any trusting in the Lord for their salvation. Nothing seems to indicate that any of them was converted to the faith in response to the testimony. So what lessons, before we, we end, what lessons do we learn from this passage? Firstly, let us mark once again. I know it's, it's been 26 chapters of marking this. Almost every chapter of the book of Acts, in one way, shape, or form, reminds us of this. But nonetheless, let us mark it again. The fight, the, the, the spiritual battle that goes on, the way that the world pushes against the children of God. Festus. Festus, the governor, the proconsul, he turns to Paul and he says, you're mad, you're fool. Much learning is driving you mad. 
too much theology in the head of yours, Paul. You're insane. How many even today do this? Even this week as we went out, as I went out to, uh, with a couple of, uh, uh, more than a couple, a handful of the, of the brethren from uh, Open Air Mission and we were there in, in Covent Garden. A few people pass by and they look at you and they, and they interact with you as if you're mad. The world will think that the message of the gospel is foolishness. And people shout. And someone is going down the street. Absolutely nothing to do with them. No one addressed them or anything. But he feels like he needs to prove a point And he calls out a, a, a horrible name. And if it's not because you, uh, you're mad. If it's not because you, you learn too much. You're mad because you've learned too little. It's because you are a Christian. The same world that called Paul mad because of much learning is the same world that called the, the, the disciples of Jesus mad because they were fishermen who never learned how to read. It's the same. You're, you're, in Portugal, we would say you're, 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 uh, you're condemned for having a dog and for not having a dog. And that's what happens here. You're mad. You're mad. And they will despise us. And the world does despise us. If it's not for having too much knowledge, it's for having too little knowledge. They despise the prophets. Didn't they? It's not just the atheists, the, uh, the ungodly. It's the religious as well. Unregenerate religious. In the, in the prophets' day, they rejected the prophets. They called them mad. They rejected our Lord. They said that he was a drunkard, possessed by, by a devil, that he was a Samaritan, that he was mad. They rejected John the Baptist the same. The reality is that the world unless turned by the Spirit with their eyes opened, will always see the message of the cross, the message of Christianity, as madness. Let us not forget that. Let us keep that in mind. Secondly and quickly, I've already alluded to this, so I won't dwell um, much on it. But let us learn from Paul. Brothers and sisters, let us learn from Paul. He had one sole purpose in life. He understood that this world is not our home. He lived this life, or he lived his life in this world, knowing fully well where he was going. So that these chains, these, these seemingly bitter providences for him were nothing compared to the glory that is to come. And that's why there was joy. That's why there was, even in the midst of all of this, that is why there is a, a candor and a sweetness in his way of being. Let us mark that. Matthew Henry, let me quote him to you. 
He says, the, Apo the Apostle Paul, he intimates his satisfaction not only in the truth, but in the benefit and advantage of Christianity. He had so much comfort in it for the present and was so sure it would end in his eternal happiness that he could not wish better to be best friend to the best friend he had in the world than to wish him to be such one as he was, a faithful, zealous disciple of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting? I think that's what Matthew Henry is alluding to here. Here's Paul in the, in the most dejected circumstances, and the best thing he can wish to others is, I wish you would be in the same position as I am. Maybe without the chains, it w would be better. But if I could wish something, the best thing I can wish on you is the same condition that I am in. Why? Because he has an eye on eternity. He understands the privileged condition that he's in. But finally, brethren, I think the biggest, um, the elephant in the room in this passage is to deal with, with King Agrippa's statement. What a woeful statement. What a terrible statement he made. You almost persuade me to be a Christian, to become a Christian. I'm almost there. But almost doesn't cut it, does it? Almost, almost doesn't cut it for any of us. Almost being a Christian is equal to not being a Christian. Almost being a Christian will not see you through to the kingdom of God. Why? Almost being a Christian... Is worth nothing at all. Like a goal that is almost scored. Some of you like football, especially the younger men. And uh, uh, you like football. When they say, "Oh, he almost scored a goal," did he score the goal or didn't he score the goal? No, he didn't. Oh, if he had, maybe we could have won the cup. Maybe we can have won the game. But an, an almost goal is no goal at all. An almost something is nothing at all. Almost becoming a Christian is being no Christian at all. You see, Agrippa lived life as he wanted. He wasn't going to let this Jew, this Pharisee turned Christian tell him what to do. I'm a, a king. I can do whatever I want to. And probably part of the reason why he Ultimately, he wasn't persuaded, humanly speaking, of course, of, of Christianity is because he was too much in love with his sin. We've already spoken about it and uh, because we have younger uh, members in the congregation. We, or, we, I won't go into the, to the, the sordid details, but Bernice, the incestuous relationship, becoming a Christian is certainly uh, not compatible Love of sin. Almost. But almost is nowhere near good enough, is it? You cannot be content to being almost a Christian. You know, hell will be filled with people who regret that day in their lives they almost became a Christian. 
hell will be filled with people who will look back at times where they heard and almost persuaded. They, 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 they kind of saw the reasonability, the common, the truth and the reasonability, the common uh, sense of Christianity, but yet something stood in the way and they couldn't, so they turned back. Hell will be filled with people like this. If you are only an almost Christian, you can have no comfort in, the, in Christianity. An almost Christian is almost saved. What pathetic words came out of his mouth. Sorry to use such strong language, but it, it is pathetic words. You almost persuade me to be a Christian. doesn't matter if he's being ironic or if he's being truthful. They are tragic. They are the most tragic words that he has ever uttered in his life. I don't need to know every single word that Agrippa has spoken in his life. I tell you this. This statement right here. Unless the Lord... Unless he turned from his sins in the latter days of his life, and no written record exists of this, uh, but unless this happened, this statement right here that Agrippa said is the most tragic statement of his whole life. So close, so close, and yet so far. How different his life would be right now. How different his eternity would be. All of us, we have those kind of moments in our lives, don't we? Especially if you're older. I, I, I would assume the, the, the children, the, the, young, the young ones here probably haven't had those many. Or probably they have, but they haven't had the time to process it. But we all have those moments in our lives. Well, think about it. Those kind of moments where a small decision you made changed the rest of your life completely. If you had done this, if you had done that, if you had invested in that stock uh, when the, your friend told you to, if you, if you had taken that job, if you had gone through this, through, to this academical route, if you had uh, not turned left uh, in, in that road, uh, uh, we all have those almost moments where it seems like everything changed in our lives for one small decision. This is your small decision right now. What will you do with this? This is your last, this is your almost moment. I would to God, I would to God that you would hear the gospel today. That you wouldn't be happy just um, sitting here and going away but that you would truly hear. I would to God that you would truly turn away from the world, repent of your sins, turn to Christ, believe on him, and not spend an eternity in regret. Because one day we will all stand before God. Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, all of this illustrious congregation that was present before Paul, you and me, we will all have to stand before God. 
perhaps like Agrippa, you, you will say, oh, oh Lord, I once stood in this great multitude, illustrious congregation, and I heard the great apostle Paul preach. And I was almost a Christian. I almost heard it. I almost was persuaded. Is it, doesn't that count for nothing? And you'll hear the son say, depart from me. I never knew you. No, not only that. It adds unto your misery. Because you're rejecting the greatest offer of all. Agrippa will not be alone in the, in the great multitude of the almost Christians. Of those who came so close and yet they were so far. Judas Iscariot. All the Jewish religious leaders. Almost. They heard the, 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 the young ruler, the rich young ruler. Oh, so close. The thief on the cross. Felix, Festus, Bernice, all of them. Let it not be you as well in that great company. The question for us today is, Will we follow the example of Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus, and all of that multitude who almost made it? Or will we go all the way? I wish I knew how to appeal to you. I wish I knew how to, to tell you of the significance of this. But you stand in the brink of eternity. I don't, I don't care if you're 10, 13, 15, 20, 60, 70, I don't care about your age. All of us, in the grand scheme of things, we're, we're, we're standing in the brink of eternity. Even if you live to see you're 80 years old. Even if you live until, the, uh, until old age, which is not a guarantee for any of us. But your indecision will soon end. And death will come. So reflect on your paths now. Don't allow the, the Agrippa kind of uh, mentality to linger. And may the Lord persuade you. I think I've done my best to do so. But he alone can truly and effectually persuade you of this. May Christ dwell in your hearts. May he give us the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the measure of his love, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, that we may be filled with the fullness.